This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. You are finally listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson. So you've heard me already. You've also now gonna, you're now going to get to listen to Alex Steele as well, who joins us from New York. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed listening to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Um, it's uh, an interesting conversation, actually. It comes at an interesting time uh, because here in the UK, we're also having the same debate about boosters for the over 50s, which includes me. Um, Alex, let's talk about uh, what is going to happen next week in Europe. It's been a bumpy week this week. Next week is going to be absolutely amazing. So three main events stand out. You have the ECB meeting on Thursday. We don't know what's going to happen there. We think we're going to get 25 basis points. We think we're going to get this new spread management tool uh, that is designed to fight fragmentation. On Thursday as well, we're going to find out whether or not the Russians uh, are going to restart the, restart the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which delivers gas out of Russia into Germany. What level is it going to come back at, if at all? And then we have the issue of the Italian government, which may be resolved Thursday as well with a confidence vote. Will Draghi be the Prime Minister of Italy by the end of next week. I am so bummed that you're going to miss it. Guy's going to miss the whole thing. He's going to be on vacation. Are you sure you want to go? devastated. Devastated that I am going to be missing all of this. Um, yeah, no, I'm going on holiday for two weeks, uh, but not on Monday because I have to do the Farm Barrett show. Right. Which is but, going to be 40 degrees hot. Uh, but not that he's been talking about that for the last few days or anything. So here was one thing I found interesting. So City had a note out earlier today that actually said that the ECB may need to give a strong signal next week that a hike larger than 50 basis points is on the table in September, saying that 50 could become the new 75 to 100. That's the first call that I've seen for something that aggressive. And I think it comes as, what if they deliver a fragmentation tool that disappoints or that doesn't have the kind of specifics that the market was looking for? Do they have to then hike even more to compensate for that? And it feels like no matter what happens with gas... They have to, have to, have to hike. Well, I think they're definitely going to do 25 next week. But is 25 already too little, too late? Um, that is the question. Also, we may find ourselves in a situation where um, we, we have the fragmentation tool and the quid pro quo for that for the Hawks is that actually we see an aggressive rate hike next time around. But September is miles away. It's a bit of a similar problem uh, for, the, for the Fed as well. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a, a rate hike and then a huge gap and I think that gap's going to be really tr- tricky to navigate for the markets. I think a lot of things are going to change in the meantime. The other added complication in all of this is what is happening with China. The Chinese economy data that we got earlier on overnight, absolutely devastating, much worse uh, than the market was anticipating. And basically is a kind of recognition that the Chinese economy uh, is is really struggling right now with zero COVID. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see how the authorities manage that. Plus, we've got a housing crisis that is that is rapidly escalating. Tom Orlick joins us now to talk us through the numbers. Tom, talk to me about the Chinese data broadly, the GDP numbers. Much worse than I was expecting. So it was a pretty terrible GDP print for China. We're all used to a Chinese economy, which in normal times grows by 6%. In 2022, in the second quarter, with COVID pushing Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen back into lockdowns, we got growth of just 0.4%. So China, normally one of the world's most reliable engines of growth, Mm -hmm. grinding to a standstill. 
Tom, at the same time, there is a serious housing crisis that continues to unfold. People not paying mortgages because they haven't actually gotten their property, etc. Is there any, first of all, give us some of the details there. And is there any sign that that could calm down anytime soon? So I think adding to the concern about China's economy, looking into the second half, you've got two really big risk factors. The first, as you mentioned, Alex, is property. We've now got reports that home buyers are going on mortgage strike, refusing to repay their loans for houses which they're worried will never be built and which they'll never be able to live in. Um, The risk there is that as funding for developers dries up, they're even less capable to finish their projects. And ultimately, that passes through to bad loans in the banks, potentially even the financial crisis, which people have been warning about in China for so many years. The second big risk is, of course, COVID zero. Shanghai has reopened, Beijing has reopened, but the COVID zero strategy remains in place. And what that means is that anytime we see a few cases pop, popping up, there's the risk that cities are going to go back into lockdown. And that raises the possibility that we're going to have a stop-go economy with further weakness in the second half. Tom, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Super grim news uh, overnight out of China. Tom Orlick joining us from Bloomberg uh, Economics. So that's sort of one part of the equation that is obviously going to ripple through and affect Europe, right? I mean, if China is really struggling, are they going to buy a lot of stuff? Are they going to be able to produce the stuff that other people want? Obviously, that's the question. And then and then we have this gas crisis. So Nord Stream 1 was shut down on uh, July 11th, well, telegraphed um, because of maintenance issues. 40% of it was already operational before that date. Does that 40% come back on July 21st? If it doesn't, then what happens? Then what happens, I think, is rationing. So it's been interesting. Shell's boss has been talking about this today. We are going to see rationing if Nord Stream doesn't come back. Uh, we've just been speaking uh, as well to Brian Gilvary. Uh, he's the chair over Ineos, Jim Radcliffe's company, the huge um, gas and petrochemicals company. Uh, and he was talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the former CFO over at BP as well. He is, he is basically saying that if you don't get Nord Stream 1 coming back, even to just the 40%, you are definitely going to see rationing. And I, I, and I also want to make the point, too, that even if you do get Nord Stream 1 coming back at 40%, A, if the drought keeps happening and it's still crazy hot there, that may not make that much of a material difference. And two, it doesn't mean that Putin can't turn off the gas on July 22nd at the end of the day. This is not no, going I, he, anywhere. He still, has, he still has a whole series of options yeah. that, that he can use. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see kind of how he tactically plays this. And I think that's going to be mm-hmm. how the story develops. But at the moment, basically, Germany is already starting to use its winter gas for summer because it's so hot. It's a huge problem. Next week, massive. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Thanks for sticking with us uh, through our previous technical difficulties. A uh, quick snapshot here of what's happening in U.S. equities. Uh, Citigroup up 11%, the biggest intraday rally since November 2020 after it beat expectations. We'll get to that in the next half hour. Equities also around the highs of the session, a bid coming into the bond market, even in the front end. And that's in part due to the fact that retail sales came in stronger than it estimated, although 
that's a little dicey if you put inflation into the numbers. But you, Michigan, um, that number coming in strong, but it was the five to 10 year inflation expectations that actually came down that gave the market uh, some support here. So that's a snapshot of where we are. Let's get some other headlines here with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The UK will offer COVID-19 boosters to a wider number of people in the fall as a new wave of infections increases pressure on the health system. The government says everyone 50 and over will be eligible for a booster shot this autumn under plans to increase protection ahead of winter. The UK Met Office has issued its most severe warning for heat next week, forecasting that temperatures could hit 40 degrees for the first time. Extreme heat could lead to power outages, canceled flights, and maybe a danger to life, while the so-called Red Extreme Warning is in place across parts of southern England on Monday and Tuesday. By the way, the nation's previous highest recorded temperature was 38.7 degrees in Cambridge Botanic Garden in July of 2019. And the flow of commodities to inland Europe is starting to buckle as water levels on the Rhine continue to fall. The lack of water is contributing to oil product supply problems in Switzerland and preventing at least two power plants in Germany from getting all the coal they need. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so much. I mean, holy heat wave, Batman. 40 degrees Celsius, that's no joke. I mean, I make fun of Guy for talking about the weather, but that's like serious health crisis level here. And I'm going to farm, basically, I'm going to be standing on tarmac all day on Monday. I, this is that's horrible. going to be the gig. It's in a suit. So I'm. I'm looking forward to it. All joking lot. aside, seriously, you need to get some powdered supplements to put in your water to help you keep electrolytes. It's actually quite a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because th- that's going to be some serious hydration yeah. depletion. Um, I'm just going to sit in the satellite truck, which is going to be air conditioned. That's going to be my strategy. But still, I don't know. I think you should do the packets too. Um, anywho, so good luck, guys, uh, on that heat wave. <laughs> that does sound truly horrible. I, I have to be honest. Um, I mentioned UMish earlier. Um, UMish uh, numbers coming in for the inflation expectations lower than estimated. The current conditions index also did pretty well. The overall index uh, came in a bit better than expected. All in all, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So Guy and I got to have instant analysis from Joanna Shu. She uh, heads up UMish, and here's kind of what she had to say about the report. She sounded a little bit more cautious. So what, when I look at the numbers, what I see is that not a whole lot has changed um, between uh, June, June and July. You know, it edged up a little bit, but it's within the margin of error. And essentially, um, consumer sentiment is is pretty stable within these two months. In a sense, that's good news because it had been declining quite a bit over over the last year. So any sense of stability is a good thing. Um, but at the same time the levels of each of these components in the index, um, how people see their personal finances, their assessment of the economy going forward, all of these things are still really close to historic lows. Um, So all in all, um, sentiment remains low. Uh, Joanne, the market's going to take that drop in inflation expectations as a sign that the Fed may not have to move as fast uh, as they thought last time uh, we got the UMish read. Is that the correct read? And I guess I'm asking just how sticky uh, that drop in expectations for inflation is. So over the last 11 months or so, um, inflation expect five to 10 year inflation expectations um, have remained between 2.9 and 3.1. Um, it's 2.8 this month. Um, the last time it was 2.8 was about a, was about a year ago. Um, what seems pretty clear to me is that consumers are reacting to a lot of different pieces of information, um, including gas prices. 
um, our data on gas price ex expectations also went down quite a bit. At the same time, though, um, while the inflation expectations appear to have improved, um, people's assessment of their living standards, of their personal finances, have not improved. And inflation remains on the forefront of consumers' minds. They... Um, over about half of all consumers are um, are blaming rising prices, inflation, on uh, for eroding their living standards. Um, so, in spite of this recent improvement in expectations, consumers are still telling us they're in a lot of pain. Okay, I, I just want to focus in on this because the S and P has reacted fairly strongly to this. You've seen a spike upwards in the S and P, particularly on that five to ten inflation number. In terms of how how um, volatile you think that number is going to be going forward. How should we be thinking about it? Just sort of drill down into your kind of sense around how that number is going to evolve, how it is evolving. You talk about the fact that the consumer's in pain. The, the market is looking for any reason why the Fed should not be more aggressive here. Is that a good enough reason, Joanne, for the Fed to maybe take a more cautious view, maybe not to front load, maybe not to deliver 100 basis points in terms of hikes? I mean, the Federal Reserve is going to be looking at these numbers alongside a lot of other other numbers. Well, what I can say from you know the Michigan surveys of consumers um, is is that, like I said, 2.8 is where we were about a year ago. 2.9 to 3.1 over the last year. We're, this current reading is a preliminary reading, and we really need to see going forward how sticky it is. I would not assume at this moment in time that um, that that these expectations are sticky. Um, certainly there is some response to, um, you know, what we're seeing some evidence of people um, citing uh, relaxed supply constraints, for example, in, um, in their assessment of buying conditions for durables. But at the same time, we also have an uptick in people who think now is the time to buy durables mm -hmm. um, because prices are only going to go up. So the main thing to remember here is that while this median number has dropped down to 2.8, what it reflects is an enormous amount of uncertainty. Um, we have quite a large jump. Um, we had a large jump last month, and this jump included um, continued to this month, of people who expect long-term inflation to be zero. Or, or even negative. And that's not an optimistic view um, at all over the trajectory of the economy. So Joanne, what I'm getting from you is just like take this number with a grain of salt in that it can change and that consumers are still quite nervous. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the market about we're talking ourselves into a recession. And I'm wondering when you're looking at the numbers that you guys just released, it, do you get the sense that consumers are also gonna be talking themselves into a recession? It's pretty clear um, looking at the um, one-year and five-year business conditions expectations that people are expecting a downturn of some sort. Um, but as we were seeing with inflation, there's a lot of uncertainty here. Certainly, um, our consumers are talking a lot about the bad news that they hear on the news. Um, they're hearing a lot about recession risk. They're hearing about a lot of these things, and they're mentioning that to, um, those risks to us um, in, in the survey. So, um, you know, given that we've seen a lot of pessimism on the economy um, with a little bit um, less pessimism on their own personal finances, yep. which, although they're historically low, um, their income expectations still um, are still fairly strong, um, though they have softened. Um, and, um, and so there is certainly some influence from, uh, from the public discourse. 
Joanne Shu joining us from the University of Michigan a little bit earlier following the data release that they delivered to the market on consumer confidence. Uh, inflation expectations, longer out, uh, longer um, duration inflation expectations coming down, uh, but consumers still feel very cautious. The, the retail sales number today was actually okay, but once you adjust it for inflation, mm-hmm. probably looks fairly cautious as well, Alex. Net-net, um, the market has, I think, alongside some comments with the Fed, basically priced a little lower the possibility of a 100 basis point hike from the Fed in two weeks' time. So that's kind of where we are. Uh, up next, we're going to talk about what's happening with the U.S. bank reporting season. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listening to The Cable, I'm Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, what made like fourth billing for the show today was actually banks, which was really surprising. Uh, Wells Fargo stock now up by almost 6% despite being down uh, earlier in pre-market. The mortgage revenue part of the business really struggling. Um, City, though, uh, having the biggest intraday rally since November 2020 as a beat on FIC and really uh, surpassed what JP Morgan did as well. Shanali Basic having another busy day uh, joins us. So we have City, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley. What's the through line? Is there one? I mean, the investor reaction and the whiplash is maybe just the only real through line. If you look at Citigroup stock, it started up on the day about 5% higher. It's now more than 11% higher. It's the best performer on the S&P 500. It is dragging up other financials. State Street is up more than 7%. Uh, Wells Fargo is up more than 6%. uh, And Bank of New York Mellon is also up. Bank of America is also up. U.S. Bank Corp is also up. Silicon Valley Bank's parent is also up. So what it's telling you here is that, yes, people are very worried about the road ahead. Of course, uh, the R word recession keeps on coming up. However, what Citigroup is showing you is that even the most uh, challenging bank in this era is able to make money in a tough time and, uh, you know, really make the most of a tough situation here. Um, Jane Frazier at Citi is basically trying to put this bank back on track. Is she doing good things or is the bank no longer doing bad things? That's a great question because remember, they're still under a lot of regulatory scrutiny. They are certainly not out of the woods. Uh, But the thing is, they are trading at half of their book value. So uh, among all of the large banks, they are trading very, very cheaply. And so if she starts to make not only the changes that she said she would, she was also getting asked a lot about costs. Because she's trying to do two things at the same time. She's trying to shed businesses that Citigroup doesn't want. Uh, she is trying to grow areas where they want to gain share, which includes trading, by the way, which is what beat today. And investment banking, advisory also beat. Uh, it, and it also, I even had a third thing in there. And it's kind of scrapped these legacy issues and these regulatory problems that have been plaguing it for so long. Um, are investment bankers starting to freak out yet? Yeah, they are. Because you know what? It's not just that advisory has fallen off. Equity underwriting. I'm just going to give you Morgan Stanley's figures for a second. For a bank that made more than a billion dollars in that business a year ago in a single quarter, that has plummeted to less than $200 million, almost like $100 million and some change, really. And so that really is a steep, steep drop-off. Where on the debt underwriting side, where people thought it was not going to be as bad, you're seeing, you know, double-digit percentage increases, really big slides at all the big banks, which tells you that there are issues when it comes to even corporations borrowing money. Uh, Hmm. Let's talk about buybacks. Um, We've also seen Citi curtailing its, JP Morgan doing the same thing. Bank of America next? 
Yeah, and that's a big question. Jeffries actually has to take a big uh, victory lap here because Ken Usden, the, the bank uh, analyst there, has been saying now for weeks that Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, and Bank of America would likely have to scrap their share buyback programs mm-hmm. in order to meet new regulatory requirements. So a lot of signs were there in the market. Um, and now they're coming to fruition. But again, if banks are preserving capital in order to meet tough regulatory environments that keeps them from getting into a worse position this crisis and keeps them lending safely, it's something investors can swallow. Goldman Sachs, what to look for? Wow, the trading is, uh, the, the stakes could not be higher. If you look at how well Citigroup did in currencies and commodities, you, you're going to want to hope that Goldman Sachs, which traditionally is a leader in those businesses, or at least does very, very, very well, that they are also gaining market share. Uh, you also hope not to see really steep losses anywhere else because they're a big uh, participant in leveraged loans. And we did see J.P. Morgan take some losses yeah. there. We saw Wells Fargo take some losses there. So let's hope Goldman can avoid the trouble. 30 seconds, any talk of a recession? Oh, all the talk in the recession in the world. Uh, Citigroup's Mark Mason said a high probability by the end of next year, but really it's inflation and other macro issues that worry him more today. Shinali, great stuff as ever. Fantastic coverage throughout this week. That coverage will continue into next week. Uh, Bluebirds Wall Street correspondent Shinali Basak. Up next, we turn our attention to what is happening in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. President Biden just landing. That story next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 5.48 in the city of London. The president of the United States, President Biden, has now touched down in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He is in Jeddah. He is meeting with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. They fist bumped on the way into the meeting. They then ignored media questions uh, about Khashoggi. They're now talking about a variety of subjects. Let's discuss what is going to come out of this trip? It is critical. A lot of people are watching uh, to see what happens on energy, on Iran, uh, on broader regional relations. Joining us now is Jody Schneider, Bloomberg's political news director in New York. Jody, what do you think is going to be critical as we look back on this trip? What do you think comes out of this? Well, Guy, I think the the relationship, how he um, you know was treated, and how he. Um, you know, what he did in Saudi Arabia in terms of just that uh, relationship with uh, the crown prince in particular, uh, that low-key greeting, that uh, fist bumping after having, you know, the handshakes and and hugs in some cases in Israel, um, it's pretty striking. Uh, And this is, I think there was a lot of pressure on President Biden. He had initially, um, obviously on the campaign trail, uh, was very tough on Saudi Arabia, particularly vowed to ostracize um, the crown prince for the 2018 killing of of columnist Jamal Khashoggi, um, then, you know, said, well, he's going to Saudi Arabia. uh, Some thought it would be a warmer relationship. So he's kind of reversed back and forth. But today seemed pretty measured. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we will remember, the the images of that measure after the more effusive images coming out of Israel. So what's going to be the tone and the conversation behind the closed doors. I mean, I highly doubt that President Biden specifically is going to say, hey, can you pump more oil? So, right. so, so what's like the intricacy that we're going to be listen, listening for? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he's not going to do that, and certainly with the kind of pressure that, that um, you know he's under, he's not going to do that. But I do think there will be a lot of talk about the region and about stability in the region and uh, talking about them and a partnership. Um, they obviously want uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE to tap unused oil production capacity, um, you know, helping combat this high, high inflation we're seeing in the U.S., highest in four decades. He's not, while well, he's likely not going to come out and ask that. I think he's going to talk about it in terms of uh, what they can do in the region, what they can do as partners, how the countries can work more closely together. And of course, you know, opening up Israel as well, that this is now, this was historic that he flew from uh, Israel right to Saudi Arabia. Um, let's talk about who else has got a good relationship um, with the crown prince, and that is the Russians. The Russians and the Saudis are very tight. Is there any way, Jody, you think that President Biden can loosen that relationship? Yeah, and I think that's certainly certainly part of, I don't know how much that will come up and in what way. It'd be great to be a fly on the wall for that part of the conversation, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's certainly something the U.S. Uh, is under pressure to do uh, from its allies as well, saying, you know, if we're all going to be for Ukraine and we are all trying to pressure the Russians as much as we can, how do you pressure the Russians? Well, you do it through their partners. And clearly the U.S. has been trying to do that with China uh, and and certainly, I think this is part of what um, that, you know, this is part of the reason to go there. Uh, whether they get anything on that, I'm not so sure. That's that's a tough ask. So no doubt the White House is going to spin this as a positive. How do they spin it as a positive? What's going to be the story that the White House spins to the market? I think what they spin is stability in the region and the relationship with Israel. And that, uh, you know, uh, are here longtime allies. We are trying to get longtime allies to be talking and that this could be good, not only from a safety and stability standpoint, but also from a, an economic standpoint. I think that's the case that will be made. Jody, do you think the region sees him as a one-term president? Well, I think increasingly a lot of people in the U.S., including people obviously in his own party, would like him to be a one-term president. Don't think he should run, given his age. Um, I don't know that he's seen that way outside the U.S. as much. I don't know that people think about it that way. Um, But certainly, um, you know, he has a host of problems at home. And being over there, this trip coming as he, you know, we saw, uh, you know, highest prices since 1981, it's just tough. Uh, and, And now, you know, Last night, we had uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia saying he would not support uh, what the White House has viewed as a very important uh, economic and infrastructure plan. He can't go for it given uh, given the cost. And that's another mm-hmm. blow to this administration. So it comes at a really tough time for the administration yeah. at home. And that was a huge torpedo yet again. There's been so much that has been stripped um, from the Democratic agenda since President Biden took office. Can you just walk me through a little bit of like what has been thrown by the wayside and what's still left? Because I'm trying to figure out if the Democratic Party is going to just vote for whatever can happen or if they have any strength to hold out for anything different. 
Well, given that uh, really tight vote in the Senate, I mean, you know, they only have a one-vote majority, and Joe Manchin has made it clear he's not going to vote for these things. Um, it's a really tough situation for them. Uh, right now, the, the two things on the agenda that they would like to get done um, you know, soon, and they have to do it soon because it's an election year and people are going to campaign this fall, they really don't have much time at all, are whatever they can try to do on, on a tax and, and spending plan. And Joe Manchin has put the brakes on a bigger plan. He's basically said he will go for something much smaller, like uh, bring, trying to bring down prescription drug prices. And then the other is this this CHIPS, uh, what they can try to do on, on what they're now calling USICA, not exactly a name that rolls off the tongue, uh, on this CHIPS Act. Uh, again, they're having all kinds of problems with that. So they're, it's much reduced from this big package that they were going to try to do this summer. But those would be two things they can try to do. They also have to pass some spending bills so that they don't uh, you know, that the government doesn't uh, have to shut down September 30th, which would be not great uh, in an election year. Jody, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. So much ground to cover. Jody Schneider, I'd like, before we go, just to bring you one headline. Mario Draghi, the Italian Prime Minister, signalling his determination to quit as the Italian Prime Minister next week. I'll Are you sure you want to go? I mean, I kind of think you should just stay. Next week feels like a week that... that you could, you've got you've got this one. You definitely got. This. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm personally excited about all the UK politics. I guess I get to talk about. Uh, Guy, have yeah. a great vacation. I'll be with you guys on Monday. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs>